Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning, and you can find it on page 1002 there in the Pew Bibles. As you're turning there, I'd like for you to consider what were some of the most life-giving words that you have ever received? Words that just spoke to your soul and, and changed your life in, in some way. Maybe, maybe they were words that came from a loved one at a, at a very key moment in your life that really gave you purpose and direction. They strengthened you. They encouraged you uh, in ways beyond your ability to, to thank the Lord and them for. Or perhaps it were words of comfort given to you in a time of loss and time of grief that, that touched your heart and, and lifted your spirit. Maybe they came from a teacher or, or a coach that motivated you to overcome some obstacle or, or really helped set you on a path that would lead to, to a, a change in direction in your life. Or maybe it was the gentle pleas of someone who cared. And they just invited you and implored you and entreated you, just gently encouraging you to take the steps that you had known for a long time that you needed to take. And they just motivated you to walk in them. Or maybe that life-giving message came as a warning. Let's face it, there, there is nothing more life-giving for you to read as you're driving in your car than a sign that reads two words, bridge out. Or maybe it was that faithful friend that just said to you, you know what, I think you need to go to the doctor and have that checked out. A warning that served to preserve your life. This passage this morning is all about life-giving words. Life-giving words that come both in the form of a warning and an encouragement. And the goal of the warning and the goal of the encouragement are the same. It's not, not to reprimand or to flatter, both of which lead to death, but to actually plead and implore and encourage to persevere in and through and for life. Whether it be a warning that God gives or the encouragement of one another, these words are meant to spur the saints of God on to persevere in their faith towards their hope of eternal glory in Jesus Christ. Words that lead to life. And I hope that that frames the way that we're going to read this passage, uh, the, the, both this warning and this call to encourage one another. Because what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, is that God warns us to watch out for the perseverance of one another's hearts. God warns us to watch out for the perseverance of one another's hearts. May we earnestly take care of our hearts and encourage the hearts of others towards life as we turn now to His Word. Now, for context, I want to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, 
they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom has He provoked... And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. God warns us to watch out for the perseverance of one another's hearts. Now, this passage is right in the middle of a second warning that is given in the book of Hebrews. There's five total. The first was back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where we are called to pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And this second warning that we're in right now began in chapter 3, verse 1, and continues all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. And so we're right in the middle of it, and right in the middle of this warning, We're given these two commands, to take care in verse 12 and to exhort or encourage one another in verse 13. So what I want to do is just structure our time around those. First, this warning for us to watch out, and second, this call to mutual encouragement. Both warning and encouragement for our perseverance in, through, and for life. So first, God warns us to watch out. Let's go ahead and read verse 12 again. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, does this passage call believers to watch out lest their hearts be found evil and unbelieving? Yes. Do those evil, unbelieving hearts have the potential to lead us to fall away from the living God? Yes. Does this passage teach us that true believers in Jesus can lose their salvation? No. But to grasp that, we need to understand the nature of our hearts and God's work in them. We need to understand the purpose that God, of God in giving these warnings. And we also need to understand our secure identity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want to begin right there. Because this warning is addressed to who? To believers, to brothers, to sisters. And what makes us brothers and sisters? Is our confidence, is our hope, is our boasting in our personal decision for Jesus? Is it in our prayers? Is it in our religious activities? Is it in our moral standards that we place upon ourselves or others? Is it with regard to who we spend time with? Is Is it owing to the fact that we ascribe to certain belief statements? Or... Or is it in our Heavenly Father's adoption of us through the completed work of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ? 
The question is, does our active belief determine who we are or who we, is who we are by God's grace made evident in what we believe, in what we are trusting in? Does our practice determine our identity or does our identity determine our practice? And this is big. Right, Because if you get this wrong, you will get this warning wrong. And if you get this warning wrong, you will go through your life in perpetual fear with no assurance of faith that leads to life as God in His grace would have you. So let's take a minute and just look at where we've been in Hebrews to remember who we are. Now the book of Hebrews starts out with a chapter and a half just focusing on on who Jesus is and what He has done. We, lock, we see His nature, His character, his, his status. We saw that He was both fully God and fully man, that He is rightful heir and Lord over all things. We saw that He was superior to all of creation, including angels, including Moses, including you and me. We saw that He created all things, that He sustains all things by the word of His power, that He, as our only hope for salvation, has offered Himself as the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He is the sole means of our redemption, the founder of our salvation, and through Him, God is reconciling all things to Himself, either through salvation or through judgment. But beginning in chapter 2, verse 10, without ever taking his eyes off of Jesus, the author of Hebrews begins to describe who we are. And so he starts out by saying, look, it was fitting, it was good and right and necessary and proper that the God by whom and for whom all things exist is bringing many sons to glory through the founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ. It doesn't say we bring ourselves to glory. It says that God, the God of the universe, the God who sustains all things, is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. If we're in Christ, God is doing that. In verse 11, it describes true followers of Christ as those who are sanctified. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. We are those who are sanctified. We don't sanctify ourselves because we and Jesus are the fruit of one plan of salvation and have one source, one family, the family of God. And it's because we are from that one source, the family of God, that our older brother is not ashamed to call us brother or sister. You have no need to be ashamed. He is not ashamed of you. Why? Because he has dealt with your sin perfectly. So if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, a brother or sister of Christ, and because of his perfect sacrifice on your behalf, he has no need to be ashamed of you. You are in. You are secure in the family of God, independent of what you have done, because he is the one who sanctifies you. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we saw that he has conquered all of our enemies, the devil, death, and sin, to help us to live faithfully in this world of the devil, death, and sin. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we are called holy. And that's not wishful thinking. He says you're holy. How do you know you're holy? Well, because you have already partaken 
in Christ. You are a sharer in this heavenly calling, this calling which God will never revoke. Jesus is the builder of God's family, God's house. He rules over it as our faithful brother. And all of that is packed into that title given to us who are in Christ there in verse 12. Brothers, sisters, that is who we are. And in verse 6 and down in verse 14, there are these parallel statements that we need to read and consider together. Verse 6 says, we are God's house. Not that we will be God's house, but that we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, again, I have to go back and ask, who is our confidence? Who is our sole means of boasting? Who is our hope? Now, if you're going to say, well, that's me. That's what I do. Well, then you just might have an evil, unbelieving heart that's leading you to fall away from the living God. But no, our only hope, our only confidence, our only boast is in Christ and in Christ alone. And so if you are clinging to Jesus... You are giving evidence to the fact that you are God's house, holy and truly having, become, having come to share or to partake in that heavenly calling. Not that you will be if you are good enough or you are faithful enough or if you keep your nose clean enough, but that you already are. And so when we come to the parallel in verse 14, it says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And again, it's not future. That we will come to share in Christ if we hold fast. It's actually in the perfect tense. Literally, for we have become partakers in Christ, if indeed we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm to the end. The results of our present state... Holding firm is the result of a past action that we have become sharers in Christ. Our holding fast to our confidence until the end is not the cause of a future sharing in Christ. It is the evidence of the fact that we have already become partakers in Christ. And if the author of Hebrews was talking about a future partaking, guess what he would have done? He would have used the future tense. But as Daniel Wallace points out in his hefty Greek grammar, the perfect tense is the most important exegetically in all the Greek tenses. The perfect tense is used less frequently than present, aorist, future, or imperfect. And when it is used, there is a deliberate choice on the part of the writer. So it was no accident that the author of Hebrews chose to say, we have become partakers in Christ. He's not saying that if you keep your nose clean, you might be able to one day share in Christ. He is saying that your clinging to your confidence in Jesus beginning to end gives evidence to the fact that you have already become a partaker in Christ. 
Persevering in the faith is not a way to keep you from losing your standing in Christ. It is a way of showing that you already have a standing in Christ. What we do evidences who we are. And of course God wants us to display Christ's completed work in us faithfully, right? To each other and to the world, hence the warning. But just as Christ has truly and already partaken of flesh and blood, according to chapter 2, verse 14, and that wasn't a temporary thing, he is still flesh and blood. If you are truly in Christ, then you have already become a partaker in him. Therefore, watch out and hold firm to our original confidence, firm to the end. Persevere in order to display who you really are. That's what his work in your life was meant to do. To be evident to everyone else around you, believer and unbeliever alike. And so if that's who we already are, the question always comes, what's the point of the warning then? Why the command to watch out lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God? What does that mean of those who, who have fallen away from the living God? What does it mean for those who, who have failed to hold fast to their confidence firm to the end? Well, it's not that they stopped becoming a partaker in Christ. It proves that they never were one. You see, in and of ourselves, this is where we've got to get the heart right. In and of ourselves, the natural heart of man is evil and unbelieving. But that's where we all start. That's what we are born into. And left to ourselves, our hearts will, as we saw last week in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, refuse to listen to God's voice. Our hearts will naturally harden in rebellion. Our hearts will put God to the test. Our hearts will naturally go astray, rejecting God's wondrous work and God's perfect ways. And that can be true of people who claim to belong to God or who claim to follow Him. That was true of the Israelites in the wilderness. Hence the example. For 40 years, they saw God's works. They they stood in awe of His plagues on Egypt. They rejoiced in His deliverance after they crossed through the Red Sea. They stood in the shadow of the pillar of the cloud and in the light of the column of fire as they followed God's leadership. They tasted of His power as they ate of the manna and drank from the rock. They trembled when God's glory descended upon the mountain. They were enlightened by God's revelation of the law to them and yet they were hardened in their hearts in disobedience against God. And as it says there in verse 10, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. It's like Jesus saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom. doesn't matter whether they've They've cast out demons and prophesied in my name. I will say to them, depart, I never knew you. Why? Because they never knew him. You see, these Israelites temporarily rejoiced in his gifts, but not in God. And it was not enough for them just to be there. That's why in verses 16 through 19, the author asks us rhetorical questions. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that, that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They're unbelievers. Though they began with great confidence, plundering Egypt, led out by Moses, they heard and yet rebelled. For 40 years they provoked God by their sin. This is no occasional sin. This is the sin of unrepentant, rebellious hearts. And so they died in the wilderness. They were disobedient in heart. And so God swore an oath against them. But verse 19 makes it clear that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Not because of occasional doubts or temporary temporarily wavering, but because they were unbelievers all along. They didn't trust Him. They didn't take Him at His word. Though they followed Him around in the desert for 40 years, though they were near His presence, though they had participated in many of the blessings that He had offered His true children, they actually tasted miracles. yet they had evil, unbelieving hearts. They fell away, yes, but they were never believers. They were warned by God, but unable to hear His voice. They had participated in many of His blessings, but they were not saved. Because of their unbelief, they failed to enter His rest. Their hearts were evil and unbelieving. And those evil, unbelieving hearts are not overcome by a personal decision for Jesus. They're not overcome by the exertion of human will. No, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 tell us that the living and active Word of God pierces and lays bare the very thoughts and intentions of the heart, exposing the evil and unbelief, and left to ourselves, that is all we have. That's the true nature of our hearts unless God changes us. Unless God first does a work in our hearts. And you know what? The book of Hebrews talks about that too. Chapter 8, verse 10, quoting from Jeremiah 31, God must first put His laws into our minds and to write them on our hearts before He will truly be our God and we will be His people. That's what Israel in the wilderness was missing. They had the law on tablets of stone, but they didn't have it written upon their hearts. He says it again in chapter 10, verse 16, that He will put His laws on their hearts and write them on, on their minds. In chapter 10, verse 22, we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith because God has sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why? How can we approach Him? How can we draw near? He has first cleansed our hearts. 
chapter 13, verse 9. God strengthens our hearts by His grace. And grace is exactly what this warning to watch out, to persevere, to hold to our original confidence firm to the end really is. It is grace to us which strengthens us to persevere. Now an unbeliever will hear the warning and remain in unbelief just like they would hear the gospel call and remain in unbelief because God hasn't put his law upon their hearts. He hasn't sprinkled them clean from an evil conscience. He hasn't washed them with the pure water of the word. But when God warns a true believer, they hear his voice and his grace at work in the warning is working through his word because God is speaking through his word Warning them, helping them to overcome their unbelief, strengthening them to turn from sin and disobedience and rebellion to know him and his ways. His warning, or should I say the grace that he imparts through the warning, as he warns, awakens them to watch out. It assures them and spurs them on to hold to their original confidence firm to the end because Through the warning, they hear his voice. And in hearing his voice, he changes their hearts. And in changing their hearts, they will hold fast in confidence to their faith, firm to the end. And the result of the warning in a true follower of Christ is perseverance for life. Now, the warning itself is, does not guarantee perseverance. It is the living God speaking through the warning, imparting his grace that strengthens the believer to persevere and to receive life. A true believer, a true child of God will not continue in evil, in unbelief, in rebellion, or disobedience, though they may for a time fall into that. But nevertheless, a true believer will heed the warning and watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart because because she trusts God. Not her high moral standards. Not her doctrinal precision. Not her religious activity. Not those whom she associates with. No. No. Because she is a child of God, she hears his voice. She responds to his grace. She trusts him. She heeds his warning. Not as a terrible insult, but as gracious words that lead to life. She takes him at his word. And she follows him in the full assurance of faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Not to earn her salvation, not because she's afraid that she might lose it, but to give evidence to the fact that she already is saved. Who we are is made evident in what we truly believe. I don't mean statements of faith, I mean active trust. Are we actively trusting in? So when you look at these warnings from God, are they serious? Yeah. 
But these are not the threats of a distant, cruel, unloving tyrant who is seeking desperately to condemn you. You just need to get your act together or you will go to hell. Now this is a caution from our loving Heavenly Father who gave His one and only Son to save us from our evil, unbelieving hearts. And He's saying, watch out. Distrust your heart. Distrust your ways. Distrust your works. Distrust your wisdom. And instead, trust me. Look to me. Follow me. Don't put your confidence or your hope in yourself. It will lead you away from me. Instead, trust my heart, my work, my ways. Hold firm to the confidence that you had in my Son from the beginning. He will not fail you. And though at times I may lead you out into the wilderness, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will bring you home. And so keep trusting me firm to the end. Friends, that is a warning that leads to life. Now, I could end right there, but I still have one verse to deal with. Because the warning to take care is not just applied to each of us individually, but corporately. And so how are we to take care lest there be in any one of us, not just in us as individuals, but in anyone from among us, an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God? Well, this is why God not only warns us to watch out, but second, to do so for the perseverance of one another's hearts. Now, the goal of perseverance, as I've already said, is not simply to make sure that I am saved. The goal is for our true identity in Christ as we cling to Him to be made evident from beginning to end. It's not just trying to avoid an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The goal of our perseverance is to have pure, ever more, ever deepening, trusting hearts that draw nearer and nearer to God. It's not avoiding hell or, or trying to stay somehow on like this side of salvation. If this is the line that means I'm saved, I just want to stay over here. That's not the point. The goal is God and finding our life in Him. But our hearts can be so hard, can't they? Just like those mornings when you just have to drag yourself out of bed and you're pretty sure that somebody was up all night beating you with the ugly stick, you know, because you just, it's a rough morning. Our hearts can be the same way. Same sort of dead, same sort of ugly, with horrendous morning breath to boot. And it takes a whole lot more than a shower to get you living for God. And this is one of the reasons why God, in His wisdom, designed the church. Because eternal security is a community project. That warning to the brothers and sisters to take care or to watch out is plural. 
But you all watch out. Everybody watch out. And we are to watch out lest there be in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart. You see, it's more than just taking personal responsibility for our own souls. And it's more than just leaving that responsibility to the leaders of the church, though that is their responsibility according to Hebrews chapter 13. But this is saying to the church, you all have the responsibility to watch out for one another for the perseverance of one another's souls. Not only can you not do it yourselves apart from God imparting His grace through His Word, but you can't do it without God imparting His grace to you through His people. So if you want to hold to your original confidence firm to the end, you need the church. And in some way, the church needs you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, puts it this way. If somebody asks a Christian, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the Word of God in Jesus Christ, which assures him of salvation and righteousness. He is as alert as possible to this Word because he daily hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He daily desires the redeeming Word. But God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or a sister, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bear and as a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And so if our perseverance in the faith is a community project, what does it look like for us to carry it out? Well, that's where verse 13 comes in. But to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, friends, this is not some permit to carry assault rifles and a license to kill at will. No, that word exhort is parakaleo. It's where we get the word paraclete to describe the work of the Holy Spirit who is our helper, helper and our comforter. That word means to call, to summon, to invite, to implore or entreat, to comfort, cheer up, or console. In this passage, it means to appeal to, to urge, to encourage. It is not a reprimand, a negative criticism, or a statement, however true, that tears someone else down. It is meant to be life-giving. It's not meant 
to point out the seriousness of sin and just how royally that other person is messed up. No, it's a plea so that they would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's not sinner. It's please don't be deceived. This is the truth that leads to life. Let's follow this together. Let's find life together. And if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, I'm sure you've seen times where this mutual encouragement has gone right and where it's gone wrong. Sometimes, even in our best attempts to speak the truth in love, to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness, our, our efforts to exhort a brother or sister in Christ still results in their hearts being hardened. But sometimes our exhortations serve to harden. And that's on us. Sometimes our encouragement brings clarity, helping another to gain freedom from sin's deceit. But other times our words might serve to compound the deceitfulness. Again, that's on us. Sometimes God works through us to speak words of grace that bring life, but at other times we might slam someone so hard with the truth that we leave them hopeless, helpless, and discouraged in their sin. Friends, may it never be so. I'm guessing that at some point in your life you have been the recipient of both words that actually encourage and build you up in Christ and words that tear down, leading you away from the living God. And I'm also guessing that you yourself have done both. So what should this mutual encouragement look like? Just look at the purpose statement there in, in the verse. It's presented here negatively, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But put positively, we are to encourage one another in such a way that all of us may be softened by the truthfulness of grace. The goal is that all of us may be softened by the truthfulness of grace. Now wait, wait, grace Grace is the opposite of sin. What, what about obedience? What about holiness? Well, apart from the grace of God, we are under the power and penalty of sin. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot and will not obey him. And in fact, every act of obedience is the fruit of God's active, present grace in our lives. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is about. And though I don't have time to unpack it all here, I would commend to you a book by Brian Chappell called Holiness by Grace. It is God's grace that declares us holy, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 1. And it is God's grace that transforms us to be more like Him. And so we are to exhort one another in such a way that all may be softened by the truthfulness of grace. Words that lead to life. True words? Absolutely. But loving and graceful words. 
that encourage and build up. And if you think about it, that's exactly what we're called to. Right? When we proclaim the gospel to each other, it's a life-giving message. If you're only preaching sin and damnation, guess what? You're not preaching the gospel. You're part of it, but not all of it. Passages like Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 say that the mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. Now, if you go around trying to be right all the time and think that it's your job to kind of dictate what you think everything to be right or wrong really is, people are not going to find life in your words. They'll find death in it. But the righteous man is concerned about living righteously. And not only for himself, but for his brother. He wants to speak in such a way that while he is upholding what is true and what is righteous, it encourages his brothers and sisters towards righteousness as well. And that is a well of life. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And that's not just like potty language, right? That's, that's talk that would lead to corruption, that would lead to death, that would tear down. So don't let that come out of your mouth, but only as such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So our words are meant to build up. Our words are meant to fit the occasion. We don't want to say the right thing at the wrong time, lest we discourage or dishearten our brother. Right? And we want to make sure that our words give grace. And know that when we fail to do that, we are grieving the Holy Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. And even in those times when the rebuke is necessary, we first have to truly take the plank out of our own eyes before seeking to remove the speck in our brothers. And when we do, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we are to approach them in humility, in gentleness, in love, with the goal to restore them, not to find fault. And even when we're dealing with someone who is, ho- is a hostile enemy to the cross of Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the goal for them, in our approaching them, is to see that they escape the snare of the devil. That God would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. Do you grant them repentance? No, you do not. Can you convince them of their need for repentance? Only to a certain degree. But God has to first grant it. Hence the need to be patient and kind and gentle and not quarrelsome that all may be softened by the truthfulness of grace. And the author of Hebrews encourages us to do this today and every day. 
that this mutual encouragement would be immediate and that it would be a continual rhythm in our lives together. That we would have a culture of encouragement in our church. As a part of our, our team building among the elders, we've been doing this encouragement module based upon this very verse. And of course, this module is meant to be put into practice, and so we're seeking to sincerely and specifically encourage one another in uh, the strengths that God has given to each other. And already we're seeing the dividends as we're striving to create this culture among us. But we've also been challenged to now take that encouragement module and train it, train others in it. And so uh, I know that among some of the community groups and some of the life transformation groups, uh, this is beginning to trickle down. And, and, and hopefully you guys have been profiting from that as well. It's my hope that it will make it all the way through all of our community groups and all of our life transformation groups. And I know we're giving thoughts towards that end but already, I'm seeing a change in, in tone and a change in disposition. Some of you who I know that I haven't trained have sent words of encouragement to me, and, and I'm sure each other's as, as well. And, it, and it's been life-giving as we've sought to encourage one another to draw nearer to Christ to help one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hearts are being softened by the truthfulness of grace. And it is my prayer for us that it would be a rhythm and a culture within this church. That we would keep doing it and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Because that's really what this passage is all about. It's a warning for us to watch out for the perseverance of one another's hearts. May we do so by the grace and the truth and the love that He supplies us in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank You so much for Your goodness and kindness and mercy towards us. Lord, help us as we seek to put this passage into practice that we would be able to live in light of our true identity in Christ, and that our lives would make evident the work that you have done in us, that we would take these warnings that you give us for what they are as pleas from our loving Father to be able to display our calling and election, that others might know and be able to see that, that we might have pure and ever-deepening trust in you, that we would draw near to you, not, not turn away from you, and that we might encourage one another to do the same, that our lives together and our words to each other and focused on the truth of your word would lead to a softening of heart and an ever-deepening understanding of truth and grace so that we might encourage one another towards life in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.